We are in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. That's page 914 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles this morning. The passage that we're reading together this morning is Stephen's speech to the high priest. It's verses 1 through 53. We're going to read it together. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans to the Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor of Shechem. But... As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him, striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, You are brothers, why do you do wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush, when Moses saw it. He was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. 
And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifice during the forty years of wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Rephim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell on houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the word of the Lord. That was a long text that we just read, but one of the things that we said, it was an important text, obviously, because it's the longest that's recorded in the book of Acts. For some reason, God recorded all of that for us to hear and to look at. It got Stephen killed, what he said there, and it caused the religious leaders to commit murder. So it's an important text. We've spent now three weeks concluding today on this text, and we'll hopefully come to the conclusion of looking at it here. But if you remember two weeks ago, the accusation that was made to and against Stephen was that Stephen had said, or he had said that Jesus had said, that Jesus would destroy the temple and he will change the customs of Moses. And in fact, that is what he said. He did say that. He did hear Jesus declare that, and he declared it as well. But the kind of destroying that... Stephen was talking about and that Jesus was talking about was a a destroying that was a fulfilling. And so the temple, yes, came to an end because the true temple was here. Jesus is the true temple. He was the fulfillment of all that that pictured. He was what the shadow was about. 
And Stephen talked about that, and we talked about it that week. And then last week, Stephen jumped into his defense of all of that, his defense to those who were coming against him for that accusation. And if you remember, we started out and we just used a portion of that where Stephen begins with the words, the God of glory, the God of glory. And we just spent some time talking about the God of glory. In essence, I think what Stephen was doing was he was building common ground. He was saying, I'm speaking about the same God. It's not a different God that I represent, but the one true God. Every time I hear the children, and I heard it during Bible school, talk about and sing about the one true God, how important it is for our world and for children for us to hear that there is only one true God. There are not multitudes of gods, and you jump on any God wagon you want to jump on. Stephen was talking about the one true God throughout all of eternity past is the God who's revealed to us in Scripture, is the God that the Old Testament begins to reveal to us. And so he begins with that one true God, and we spent time talking about that, how important it is that we begin with who that God is, the God of glory. And we talked about how that is hard fully to describe because we can't fully describe who God is. But the importance of the fact that we must start We must always start the gospel with the God of glory. Um, The good news will not be good news until it's first bad news, until we see who we are in respect to the God of glory. Then we look outside of ourselves for a remedy. But if you don't really fully see that God, sometimes you don't look outside as desperately as you need to look outside. And Jesus isn't as precious as he should be. He's just something we kind of add to our lives. So the gospel, as we said last week, does not begin with come to Jesus. That is not where it begins. It it begins with the God of glory, a God who has been offended, a God uh, against whom we have committed cosmic treason, a God to whom we need to be reconciled again. And the only way that can happen is to see the apex of his glory in the person of Christ. That's where we most fully see it. And and when you see the God of glory and you see yourself in relation to him, then the glory of God in the face of Christ takes on new dimensions to you and dimensions that you will not easily cast off. So I hope that, that that was helpful last week. I think... It's important to begin there. Now, this week, we want to look quickly this morning because our time isn't long. We want to look at Stephen's defense more fully. And I want to say really three things about it, three things that, that I think are in the text, two that I think Stephen reiterates, two things that he's saying to these religious leaders. And we'll get the big picture of that. We won't get caught in all of the details. But I think one of the big picture items that Stephen uses in his, in his defense is that the God of glory is the God of the nations. The God of glory, this God of glory, is the God of the nations. It's why he begins with Abraham, where he should. But he begins by saying that God first appeared to Abraham, not in the promised land, but outside the promised land. That this God, this God of glory, is the God for 
all of the nations. He's not confined to a place. He's not confined to what the Jews thought was the temple. And that's why the temple was so precious to them. But he rather is the God of the nations. The promise that came to Abraham, the promise that you saw as you came in this morning, is that God promised to Abraham that he would bless Abraham so that what? So that Abraham could be a blessing to the nations. And it got short-circuited among the Jewish people. They began to hold it to themselves. They didn't let that blessing flow through them. And it got stopped. And so I think Stephen's defense here is to say, this God is the God who wants to bless the nations. And all of the things that, that you hold so precious are are shadows of the true reality that is to come. He was trying to convey that to those people. That he is the God who beckons us to go to our neighbors and the nations, to, to other people, to go and to declare the message of Christ. Um, just, just kind of a, a point of, of, of literally personal privilege for me this morning to talk about is, in regards to VBS has relation to this. Um, this morning, um, the Pizza's family is not with us, but for a number of months, um, they have had Mia in their home. Mia is from China. And uh, this, this particular Sunday, they're gone as they kind of say goodbye to, to Mia. They're taking a trip, and then she'll be leaving us. She won't be back in our services again here at least won't be back again soon. I hope someday she will come back. But one of the blessings for me is to be up in the balcony this week and to watch Mia, to watch her in singing the songs that the children were singing and the actions that they were expressing there and to realize anew and afresh, this God is the God of the nations. He's the God that wants to go to all peoples and... uh, and the interesting thing, in fact, we're going to talk about it on July 5th here. We're going to set the whole service aside. But, but today, our neighbors are more and more the nations. Mia would be an example of that. Mia came here from China. And so she became our neighbor. But the, our neighbors are becoming the nations, even up in this white Scandinavian country that we live in. They're coming. The nations are coming, and this gospel is for the nations. And I think there are wonderful opportunities of declaring that message. But that's what Stephen was saying. This God is the God of the nations. You've bottled him up, and you think you can hold him to yourself. But that's not, that's not right. You're not reading the scriptures correctly. And the second thing that Stephen says to those who are accusing him in this text, I I think, is that you have a history. You have a history of of rejecting God's deliverance or God's deliverers. There are two different people that are brought up in this text particularly. There are others, but primarily it is Joseph and Moses. He, He raises the life of Joseph and spends an extended time talking about the life of Joseph Joseph, and then he turns to Moses. And both of those, in verse 9, you read this, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And then if you go down into verse 20, 
of the text, you find this. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. And then it says later, he supposed that as Moses got older, that the people would realize he was going to be their salvation, their deliverer. And the people rejected him. In both of those cases, God raised up a deliverer. And in both of those cases, they rejected the deliverer. Both times they came against him. And Joseph, who had a dream, remember, that his brothers would serve him. And when he told them the dream, they became angry and they rejected him. They tried to do away with him. And Moses, in the same way, when he rose up against the Egyptian, the people came against Moses. They rejected him. But the interesting thing about the text is that God continued to work. God continued to deliver them. In fact, delivered them out of that rejection. Um, Joseph was rejected. Remember, he was rejected. But then, in all of God's providence, was moved to Egypt to be their deliverance. And then Moses, in the same way, was rejected. He went to the desert, but God brought him back then to take the people out of Egypt. God continued to work, even though the people kept rejecting, kept coming against um, God's deliverance. And then ultimately he turns to Jesus and he likens the rejection of Joseph, the rejection of Moses, the rejection ultimately of God, who is working in all of that, to their rejection of the righteous one who is Jesus. And he comes to them and says, you're a stiff-necked people. You have always rejected God's deliverance. The amazing thing is God's mercy in that. He continues to work and in fact works in the midst of their rejection. He turns the rejection and uses the very rejection to be their deliverance. And ultimately, we see shadows of that in Joseph. We see shadows of that in Moses. And then we see the reality of it in Christ. He's rejected. But in the rejection comes their Deliverance comes the deliverance for all who look to Christ. And so he paints that picture and the people get increasingly angry with him and turn against um, Stephen. And ultimately, they put him to death. We'll look at that part next week. We'll look at Stephen in that context then. But let me just tie this up this morning and then we'll go. What... What was it that caused this hardness of heart? What was it that caused these religious leaders to reject and reject and ultimately reject Jesus? In fact, in the text it says that uh, you stiff-necked people and circumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. Why? What was it? What were they they holding on to? What application can we find in this text, in our own hearts, that can be stiff-necked at times? I think there is an application. This is what I want to leave with you. I want you to look at two different verses. I want you to look, first of all, at verse 41 of chapter 7. And look what it says there. It says in that 
text. And they made a calf in these days. This was, this was actually the second time they rejected Moses. But they made a calf in these days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in what? Rejoicing in the works of their hands. And then go down to verse 48 and look there. It says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. That's a reference to the temple. But in both of those cases, it talks about things made by our hands. What is God coming against? What is Stephen coming against? What's he trying to point out to these religious leaders? What in his defense is there? I think it is an application at that point that what these religious leaders were doing is they were attempting to save themselves. They were attempting to create something or hold on to something that somehow would be the work of their hands and that their salvation ultimately would be by their hand, not by God's. God will always reject that. God will always reject that. The, 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 the title of this series is The Giver Gets the Glory. And the Bible makes it very clear, God will not share his glory with another. He will not do that. And the gospel is about God being the giver. God coming and saving a people who, who cannot save themselves. He will not allow them to save themselves, and they can't. You see what I think Stephen was coming against, what it was in the hearts of those religious leaders that God was so opposed to was them to attempt to save themselves or to have a part in saving themselves, to create a man-made kind of thing. You see, that's, that's where our hearts always want to go. We want to... We want to get the credit. Our pride wants to get the credit at some level, at some place. We want to glory in ourselves. But the Bible says again, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who are the humble? They are those who realize that this salvation will not be by our own hands. If you're ultimately going to be saved one day. That salvation will be utterly and fully and completely dependent on the work of another. And that's where we need to reside, the work of another. That's why Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the place we meet God in the work that he's accomplished, in what he has done. We rest there. We meet God in Christ. He's the one who finished the work. He's the one who sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's the one who deserves the glory. I hope this morning that you know the reality of him being your temple, him being the one who allows you to meet God. It is not in the work of your hands. It is not in the work of your effort, but in the work of his hands in the work of his effort, and therefore he's the God who gets the glory. Do you know him as that? Do you glory in him as that? I hope that's where you go. We're going to close this morning where we began.
song that talks about him being our redeemer and glorying in him as our redeemer. I hope you're glorying only in Christ. That's what Stephen was declaring to these. You must look to the righteous one and him alone for your salvation. Let's stand and sing together. I will glory in my Redeemer Whose priceless blood has ransomed me Mine was the sin that drove the bitterness And on him on that judgment tree I will glory in my Redeemer Who crushed the power of sin and death my only savior before the holy judge the lamb who is my righteousness my lamb who is my righteousness I will glory in my Redeemer, my life he bought, my love he owned. I have no longings for another, I'm satisfied in him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm held by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer, who carries me on eagles' wings? He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumphs on I'll never sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise. His face forever to behold. His face forever to behold. You sing line where it says his faithfulness my standing place his faithfulness he is the one who's the worker and deserves the glory the God of glory undoes us so that Christ can put us back together the God of glory undoes us so that we won't look to the work of our own hands but we'll look to the glory of God in the face of Christ let's pray Father Help us. Help us 
to not be a stiff-necked people, to not be a people who will resist letting your faithfulness be our standing place. Father, the, the default of our heart is to try to do it by the work of our hands because ultimately, Lord, we like the glory. But Father, open our eyes to see that that's not the gospel. Open our eyes to see that you are the God who deserves the glory because you're the only one whose faithfulness can be our standing place. You're the only one, Father, who can finish the work. Help us, Father, to rest there. Help it to be our resting place. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.